Well, good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see all of your faces. Um, we are in the 11th and final week of our 10-week series on Philippians. Uh, that's right, our 11th week of our 10-week series on Philippians. We ended up adding a sermon somewhere in the middle. I don't remember where, but there was just kind of too much stuff to try to unpack in 10 weeks, so we needed that, that one extra week. So uh, we get this final chapter today, which is great. Now, hopefully you remember from some of the earlier sermons that we did that the letter to the Philippians is a friendship letter. Paul's writing it to this church in Philippi, a church that he loves dearly, a church that he describes as as holding in his heart, a church that he yearns for with the affection of Christ Jesus. This is a friendship letter. We know from the first chapter that one of the reasons he's writing to this, to this church, is because of their partnership with him in the gospel from that first day until now. He's writing because of their partnership in the gospel. And that doesn't only mean that they partnered with him in spreading the gospel in that city. It also means that they partnered with him in very tangible ways, practical ways, by providing for his needs. Um, They send a gift of money to Paul, who's in prison. They send Epaphroditus, who is a brother they love dearly, to to aid uh, Paul when he's in prison. In the ancient world, if you're in prison, you don't have a state system that provides you with food and water. You have to have friends who do that for you, or family who does that for you. So that's why they send Epaphroditus. So in the midst of all the other things that's going on in this letter, stuff we've talked about already, like encouraging them to stand firm in the face of persecution, or encouraging unity amongst the believers, or encouraging them in the face of suffering and hardship, this letter is also a thank you note, in a sense. He's writing to say thank you for what they've done. Now, as soon as I mention the term thank you note, I immediately start thinking of The Tonight Show with Jimmy Fallon. Any of you guys watch this? No? Like two of you? Shame on you. You need to watch it. Uh, every Friday night, he writes these ridiculous thank you notes to, to people or things. Um, I'll just give you an example. Like, thank you, oatmeal, for looking like I already ate you before I eat you. <laughs> or thank you, peer pressure, for being totally not cool, unless my friends think it's cool. And then it's pretty cool, I guess. Or my personal favorite, having a little baby, thank you, cribs for being the most adorable type of prison. Yeah? But you get, you get the idea. He writes this note. He says who it's to. And then he goes on to say thank you and tell them what it's for, why he, why he is thankful for this gift. But the letter to the Philippians looks nothing like this. Paul just doesn't state up front, you know, thank you for the gift and then go on and on and on. Uh, let me kind of try to reimagine this letter for you and try to reimagine why it's so shocking, the way he does it, the way he does it. So imagine you're part of this financially strapped college group at your church, and one of your members goes off on a humanitarian mission to Central Africa, and you, you know, scrape up money. You don't have much, but you scrape together a pretty generous gift to give to this guy, and you send it. And a long while later, you finally get a letter back from him. But the letter goes on for quite a while about how you can serve the Lord better in your city. And then right at the end, there's kind of a, oh, and by the way, the gift is mentioned. But he doesn't even use the word that means thank you. He never actually even says thank you. In fact, he talks more about how little the gift was needed than by saying thank you. Right? This seems like a bit of a slap in the face, I think. Why does he do it this way? Well, I think he does it this way in a very, for very important reasons. He does it this way because he's trying to reframe a few things for the Philippians. And those three things are what we're going to walk through in this sermon. He's trying to reframe what friendship means as a Christian. He's trying to reframe uh, what contentment looks like as a Christian. And he's trying to reframe what generosity looks like. 
So those are the three things we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at friendship, contentment, and generosity. Okay? So let's get into it. First point, friendship. Friendship in the ancient world worked somewhat differently than friendship works now. There's basically three kinds of friendships. There's a lot written about friendship in the ancient world. And the three kinds that are usually listed are in ascending order, from order of kind of least important to most important, would be friendships that are purely utilitarian. Friends that you would have just for social reasons, to help you climb the social ladder, or to help you advance in your career. These are utilitarian friendships. You know, you have them, but they're not really true friendships. Then there's friends above that that would be friends of common enjoyment. You enjoy things in common. You enjoy uh, doing things together. You know, imagine you're part of like a car club or you fence together or something like that. These are friends that you would have for those reasons. And then finally, at the pinnacle of this, are true friendships. And this is a friendship between virtuous people. It's a friendship where you see the best of yourself in the other person. And it's this sort of friendship that implies uh, a mutuality of obligations, benefits, gratitude, and even you share your enemies with one another. This is a deep, lasting friendship, true friendship. Now, I've, I'm sure you can think of people in your own life that probably fit into each one of those categories. You likely don't want to admit that you have anybody in that first category, people that you're just using to help you advance in your career. I hope you don't have many of those. Um, but if you do, you probably know that it implies a sort of mutual uh, giving and receiving. Kind of, you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. If you've seen the Godfather movies, it's like entering into a favor with the Godfather. Okay? Another thing, go watch the Godfather movies if you haven't seen them. Verse 2, anyway. Um, the Godfather, at some point, if you ask him for a favor, he's going to come to you and ask you for a favor. And you probably don't want to know what that favor is going to be. Now, we probably all have people who are friends because of things that we enjoy in common. But it's not necessarily those relationships that are true friendships. Just because you share things in common doesn't mean that that person is a true friend in the ancient sense of the word. One of my absolute best friends is a guy I met at Regent College named Benj. And on the surface, it wouldn't look like we have a whole lot in common. He was into team sports growing up. I obviously was not. Uh, he played soccer in college. He doesn't play any instruments. He's American. Uh, that's a shot again. I'm just kidding. That's awesome, he's American. He doesn't really cook. The list could go on and on and on, right? But it's a true friendship because he's someone that I looked up, look up to. He's someone that I respect and admire. He's a man that I love deeply. And it's this sort of friendship that Paul has with the church in Philippi. Theirs is not a relationship based on self-interest, on what they can get from the other person. Theirs isn't a relationship based on even common interest. It's a relationship rooted in their being in Christ, where Paul sees in the Philippians true partners in the gospel. He sees the best of himself, which he knows is Christ working in him, in them. And that's the root and the ground of their friendship. And it's for this reason that this thank you section of the letter looks nothing like what we would expect the letter to look like. He wants to express to them his gratitude for what they've done, but without making it seem like he's downgrading their friendship to, to the level of one that simply supplies his needs. I'll say that again. He wants to express his gratitude to them, but without downgrading the friendship to one where it just becomes mutual giving and receiving. Because that's not what Christian friendship is to be about, Paul's going to show us. Look at verses 10 and 11. 
in Philippians. So open up your Bibles or pull out your phone or whatever you've got to do. Or look it up up there. Verses 10 and 11. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is overjoyed that at last the Philippians have revived their concern by sending this gift with Epaphroditus. And the word he uses for revived here is a a botanical word, a flower word. It means to blossom afresh. So a better translation would be, I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length your concern for me has blossomed again. I think it's a really beautiful image and it captures well the kind of feelings that you get when you see a good friend after a long absence. I'm sure you've all experienced that at some point. But almost the moment he says this, you know, I'm overjoyed that at last you've revived your concern. He wants to make sure they don't misunderstand what he's saying. So first, he wants them to know that he doesn't think they were just neglecting him. Paul doesn't think they were neglecting him, and he wants them to know that. He says, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity to express it. Both of these verbs he's using are verbs that express kind of an ongoing nature. You were ongoingly concerned for me, and you ongoingly had no opportunity to show it. Paul wants them to know that that's what he knows. And second, he doesn't want them to infer that his rejoicing is over the gift itself. He says, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul doesn't rejoice in the Lord because he's finally able to eat again. That's not why he's so happy. Paul rejoices in the Lord because their friendship has finally had an opportunity to blossom again. And this becomes even more clear later on in verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. What Paul's doing here is making sure to root their friendship, not in the soil of giving and receiving what I can do for you or you can do for me, but in Christ. That's where he wants to root friendship. He's making a really strong statement against the kind of friendships that seek their own interests. The kind of friendships that are concerned mostly with grasping for a higher, higher social standing or what I can get out of the relationship. What Paul is telling us is that followers of Jesus aren't to engage in that sort of friendship. Because the Christian life isn't about climbing the social ladder or improving your image by who you hang out with. As Paul reminded them at the beginning of chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Humility is to be the ground of Christian friendship, because humility is the attribute that Jesus displayed perhaps most perfectly. Paul goes on in chapter 2 to say, Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And it's this reality, the reality of God on a cross, that's now to be the basis of our friendship. This is the reason Paul wants to avoid getting hung up on notions of giving and receiving. He doesn't want their relationship, which should be rooted in Christ on the cross, to become rooted in a mutuality of giving and receiving. This is what a transformed relationship is supposed to look like. And these transformed relationships are the glory of God on display in the world. 
True friendships are such a beautiful thing because they're what the Christian life is about in many ways. Following Jesus isn't primarily about personal sins or, or nailing down every point of exactly what you believe. It's about reconciliation with Christ and reconciliation with others in Christ. It's about relationships transformed by the gospel. Okay, so that was our first point. Paul is reorienting what friendship looks like. Now, I want to come back and talk more about the significance of the gift in our last point. But for now, I want to move to our second point, the nature of Christian contentment. So let's look a little further on. Verse, chapter 4, verse 11, 11 to 13. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. The word that Paul uses for contentment here in that first verse, I've learned whatever situation I am to be content, uh, is a word packed with lots of meaning in the ancient world. Roger last week talked a lot about Stoicism, the ancient philosophy where we get the term Stoic from. And it's a philosophy that prided itself on being detached from the world, on being kind of above everyday struggles. It required its followers to amend their wills and their minds to deal with all the stuff that happened around them. Their goal was contentment, no matter what the circumstances. But this meant something entirely different from what Paul is talking about here. When the Stoics talked about contentment, their goal was self-sufficiency. I'm going to be content because I am fine in and of myself, and the world is not going to affect me like that. But when Paul takes this word, he transforms its meaning, and it's no longer contentment based on self-sufficiency. It's contentment based on Christ's sufficiency. The outworking of both of these things might actually look quite similar, but in reality, the two philosophies are a thousand kilometers apart. The Stoic notion of sufficiency comes from within. Paul's sufficiency comes from outside of himself, from being in Christ, whom he's totally dependent on. And this is disgusting to the Stoics, this kind of dependency on somebody else, or on some other god. This is how we can say in verse 11, not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. And then he goes on to flesh out exactly what that looks like in verse 12 and 13. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. Paul's circumstances have run the gamut of all of these things, from being humbled and brought low to being, you know, abounding with stuff, being truly gifted. But what this means is that Paul is intentionally resting our understanding of contentment away from a stoic one, where this is about what I do, and moving it towards one where we are dependent wholly on Christ. Stoics loved being in need. They loved being in want, so they could show their superiority over it. But the detached attitude they took was exactly the opposite of what Paul was talking about. They hated being humiliated. The humiliation of humility, you might call it. They wanted to be superior over their needs not humiliated. But Paul has no issue with being humiliated whatsoever. And he's saying that we shouldn't have any issue with being humiliated either because Jesus had no issue with being humiliated. 
There's a number of really colorful lists in Paul's writings of the various humiliations he had to endure for the sake of the gospel. And I'll just read you one from 2 Corinthians. It's pretty, pretty epic. Starting at verse 24 in chapter 11. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes, less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers. In toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all of the churches. It makes feeling a little bit embarrassed about reading your Bible on the bus in context, doesn't it? I think. But it's not just humiliation where Paul knows that he's participating in Christ. Paul knows that abundance is also a way of participating in Christ because God is the truly generous God, the one who abounds. So to be in abundance is also to participate in the glorious riches of Christ Jesus. But what's really significant about this section, I think, is that for both Paul and for the Stoics, contentment is not about stuff. Okay? For neither of them is about stuff. But I think for the vast majority of us in our culture, contentment can at least partially be found in exactly those things. We find contentment in security, knowing that we've got a job that pays the bills, that allows us to buy food, that puts a roof over our heads. Maybe we get to go on vacation every now and again. We find contentment in that stuff. We also find contentment in the comforts of this life, too. Family and friends, a good meal, doing the things that we enjoy doing, whatever those are. And these are good things. I'm not saying we shouldn't enjoy these things. We absolutely should. To say that would be totally misreading Paul in this section. I mean, he's just expressed his joy over his friendship with the Philippians. But these things aren't the source of Paul's contentment. The source of Paul's contentment is Christ and Christ alone. So even though the Stoics are right in ascribing contentment not to stuff, they totally missed it in ascribing contentment to self-sufficiency. Contentment is never going to come from stuff, from security, from comfort. But it's equally never going to come from our ability to stand over those things, stand superior to those things. Paul says he's learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. He says... I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now this is a phrase that gets thrown around a lot in Christian speak. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. You've probably seen it on a bumper sticker at some point. I can pretty much guarantee it. But it's usually taken entirely out of context. It's usually taken to mean you can do anything you want as a Christian because Christ is the one who is in you strengthening you. But that is not what Paul is saying. That's to take it out of context. It's to misunderstand Paul. What Paul means here is specifically in reference to abounding and being in need, being humiliated and, and having lots. The kind of thinking that says you can do anything, anything you want, is the same kind of thinking that gets you the phrase, uh, you can do anything you set your mind to. It's just not true. Okay? And that's not what Paul is saying here. What it does mean, what Paul is saying, is that I can be content in, in situations of hunger, in situations of plenty, situations of humiliation and abundance, because Christ is the one who lives in me and strengthens me. 
So that list of stuff Paul talked about, he can be content in the midst of all of that because it's Christ who's in him and Christ is the one in whom he finds his contentment. And I think it's also really significant that Paul talks about situations of want and plenty, of situations of humiliation and abundance. He knows that at every point along this spectrum we're at risk of losing sight of the fact that contentment is to come from Christ. It's not only when we're poor or hungry or humiliated that we forget that our contentment comes from Christ. It's also when we have more than what we need. In fact, I think this is when we are at most at risk of forgetting where our contentment comes from, when we have too much. So for most of us in this, in this church, I would guess, in this city, the question is probably not how do we cope with not having enough, The question is probably, how do we cope with having too much and still keep Christ as the source of our contentment? How do we do that? I think the answer to that is going to come as we move into this last section quite nicely. Our third point now, generosity. Paul is going to reframe what generosity looks like. See, the Philippians Philippians have given Paul an incredibly generous gift. They've sent Epaphroditus to care for him, to bring him good word about them, what's going on in their church. They've sent him to care for Paul. They've also provided for Paul financially, probably from right at the beginning of his ministry, he says, when he left Macedonia. And Paul rejoices in the Lord because of this partnership. But it's not, as I said, because he's able to eat again. It's because their friendship, which is rooted in Christ, has had an opportunity to blossom again. In other words, it's not about the gift. It's about what the gift signifies for Paul. He says in chapter 4, verse 17, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Paul is thrilled because what the gift tells them, or tells him about the Philippians' hearts. See, Philippi is a church that's suffering persecution. They're suffering false teachers. They're suffering disunity amongst the church. Yet in the midst of all of that, Christ is still working in their hearts, So that they show immense care for Paul. Immense care for the one who initially brought them the gospel. And this is a sign for Paul of what he said right at the beginning of the letter. And this is kind of the the overall theme of Philippians, I think. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. The Philippians' attitudes towards their resources both financial in supporting him, personal in sending Epaphroditus, is a display of the work of God in their lives, Paul is saying. What we've seen again and again in Philippians is the importance of a faith that actually expresses itself in the lives of those who hold it. This is why Paul rejoices in the Lord over their partnership. It's also why he's so concerned that their friendship doesn't devolve into one that's simply about giving and receiving. Because that's not what this is about. This is about the generosity that God is working in their hearts and in their lives. If we read this passage and think that Paul is ungrateful for the gift, then we've not really understood Paul. Right after he says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, he says in verses 14 and 16, Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent help for my needs once and again. 
Paul knows where he would be without their generosity. And he's deeply thankful for it. And he shows us that to be a follower of Jesus is to be actively concerned for our partners in the gospel. And that doesn't just mean people who are you know, in, in full-time ministry. That doesn't just mean missionaries or parachurch workers or pastors. Your primary partners in the gospel is the person sitting next to you in church. So to follow Jesus means to take an active concern in the lives of those who are sitting next to you, of your partners in the gospel. To borrow language from earlier in Philippians, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel means supporting personally, financially, prayerfully, those who are engaged in the cause of the gospel. And sometimes this is going to mean generosity out of your abundance. But generosity in abundance for the Christian is still sacrificial generosity. Generosity to the point of feeling it. And I think it's this sort of sacrificial generosity that enables us to keep Christ as the source of our contentment. That's what Paul is showing us. How do you maintain Christ as your source of contentment when you have too much? You give. You give of what you have. Time, resources, money. That's what Paul's saying. We give sacrificially of what we have for the sake of Christ because our contentment isn't found in having too much and having an abundance of stuff. Our contentment is in Christ. We're often called to generosity in the midst of need, too. And let's be honest, we live in Vancouver. This is an expensive city. And I'm sure that most of you at some point during the week say, oh, I could just use a little bit more. You can pretty much always say that. I say that. What that evidence is in me is that my contentment isn't actually found in Christ. I'm looking for contentment in having enough stuff and knowing that I'm going to have enough for tomorrow or next week or next year. But why Paul is so overjoyed in this section of the letter is because in the midst of their need, the Philippians' need, in the midst of persecution and upheaval in the community, the Philippians are demonstrating God's generosity working in their hearts. Look what he says in verse 18. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. The generosity the Philippians have displayed, Paul calls it a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. This is the same language of sacrifice that Paul usually uses to talk about the death of Christ. I'm going to say that again. This is the same language that Paul usually uses to talk about the death of Christ. How does he do that? How can he do that? How can he relate our generosity, the Philippians' generosity, to the death of Christ? It's because the generosity of the church is a participation in and an outpouring of the generosity of Christ. It's a participation in and an outpouring of Christ's generosity. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. We are able to give generously and sacrificially because our contentment isn't found in an abundance of stuff, but in Christ, Paul is saying. The one who gave everything that we might be found in him. And it's for this reason that Paul isn't concerned about paying the Philippians back for their generosity. 
See, in the ancient worlds have already alluded to, to give a gift is to have one come back in return. To receive a gift is therefore to give one back. You give me $100, I'll give you $100 back. You have me over for dinner, I'm going to have you over for dinner. It's balanced reciprocity. But look what Paul says in verse 19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. They gave stuff to Paul. They gave Epaphroditus. They gave gifts to Paul. But it's going to be God who repays them, Paul says. And it's not going to be with that kind of balanced reciprocity that we expect in the ancient world. God's going to give with an extravagance that only God is capable of. Out of his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Our God is a generous God beyond what any of us can imagine. It's the kind of generosity that's uncomfortable. It's the kind of generosity when you go to somebody's house and you say, I like that lamp, and they say, oh, I'd like you to have it. It's that kind of generosity. We're not comfortable with it. I'm not comfortable with it. Because I'm not prepared to receive or even believe most of the time that there's a God who could love me that extravagantly, that lavishly. In the face of all of my brokenness and all of my failings, I can't receive that. But that's precisely what God wants to show us in Christ. The one who gave everything that we might know the depth of God's love for us. The depth of his forgiveness. And that's how Paul wants to end this letter to the Philippians. With them knowing the generosity of God's love for them. And the minute he said this, he knows that there's only one possible response to it. And it's verse 20. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. It's praise. It's the only response to the generosity of God. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.